are continuing our series in Women on the Outside. And I hope you guys have been enjoying this sermon series as much as I have. Yeah. Yeah, super cool. And this week we have our dear friend Abe from Northfield coming to give us a message and a story of another woman on the outside. So welcome up, Abe. Thanks, Karina. Good morning, Woodland Hills. It's good to be back with you this morning. And this morning, we're in Matthew chapter 15. We are going to read the story of uh, who Matthew calls the Canaanite woman. And if if women, generally speaking, in the ancient world were in the margin um, at times, this woman's kind of, in terms of, uh, from a Jewish perspective, she's off the page. She lives up in the near these Phoenician cities that are very affluent. She may not necessarily have been rich, but they're very affluent port cities. They're Greek, so it's not Israel. Uh, she is called Canaanite, so there's a religious divide as well, ethnic divide, perhaps a socioeconomic one. It's a... There's a different world uh, between this woman and Jesus. And, and, and this story, if you're familiar with it, you know this story presents some very real challenges. Jesus says some things that are very kind of difficult to digest and, and figure out. Um, and I'm not going to be able to solve all of those today. Uh-oh, preacher's not going to uh, solve everything for us. Sorry. Um, it's a, just a very challenging uh, text. And I think we're going to see that when we read the, the text together. But the story is also profoundly beautiful. It, it's um, this, this story that is about a, a profound faith that a, this woman has uh, as a Gentile. And um, so it's kind of our story, um, many of us being Gentiles. It's beautiful because it, 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 it shows us that the work um, of, of the Jewish Messiah was good to spill out and pour out into the whole world. The beauty, however, I don't think solves all of the challenges of the story. But at the same time, I don't think that the challenges of the story diminish in any way the beauty that the story presents to us. Before we read the text from Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 21, I want to say three uh, words about this, three things that I think can help shed some light on the passage. Uh, The first is this. At the very end of the book of Matthew, Jesus is ascending to heaven, and he says this to his disciples, to his followers. He says, All authority, heaven and earth, been given to me. Therefore, go to all the nations, all the nations, he says, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. To all the nations. What I want to point out here is that up until this point, when the work of the Messiah was done, up until this point, they were not to be sent to all the nations. Um, And we'll see that. Uh, Sometimes that that is not often um, uh, remembered uh, by us. The second thing I want to say about this story is this. Immediately before the story of this Canaanite woman, Jesus is in Jerusalem, uh, and he's teaching about what defiles a person. Uh, What puts them on the outside, right? What makes them an outsider, even if it's just for a time. Uh, what are the boundary markers for being included in God's people? And how do we know? And Jesus is teaching and saying, listen, it's not the religious ceremonial hand-washing 
that makes someone uh, in, an insider. And it's not the dietary food laws. And what you eat doesn't defile you, Jesus said. What defiles you is, is, is uh, what you say and how you live your life, these kinds of things. And so Jesus is challenging the accepted kind of cultural norms of what defines who God's people are. Uh, what, means, what makes you an insider? What pushes you to the outside? Jesus is challenging these things. Uh, and it's making a lot of people nervous. Jesus kind of had a tendency to do that. So that's the second thing I want to say. The third thing I want to say is that immediately following this story of the Canaanite woman, Matthew says Jesus heals other people, and then he feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. Um, this is chapter 15. In chapter 14, he, he, had, healed, uh, he had fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And here's the point I want to highlight about these feedings. Matthew tells us, that when Jesus uh, was done with this miracle, all the people, the children of Israel, they were all filled up. They were satisfied. They all got done eating and had to go sit on the couch and watch a football game or something. They were so full. So with those things in mind, let's now go to Matthew chapter 15. We'll put it up, <clears throat> we'll put it up on the screen here as well. Jesus left that place. Again, uh, he left Jerusalem. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But Jesus did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. And Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Huh. But she came and she knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And Jesus answered, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Hmm. Just gets more troubling. And she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done to you as you wish. And her daughter was healed immediately. Amen. It took a while. <laughs> but she got the healing. <clears throat> now, typically in the Gospels, when someone comes to Jesus and they say, Lord, have mercy on me. Uh, if the person is blind, you know, we expect, what we expect is that Jesus is filled with compassion. And Jesus will give that person sight. Or if the person is uh, lame or crippled uh, on a mat, Jesus will you know, get up and walk uh, and heal that person. If the person has a demon in them, the be demon better look out. Because here comes Jesus, King Jesus. And he will throw that demon wherever he decides to throw it. That's what we expect Jesus to do. 
Now, these kinds of healings, by the way, um, they were, of course, life-changing moments for the people who received the miracle. They were also, they were life-changing in that they restored um, something that they had lost, but they also were restored uh, into the, the, the people of God. These things would oftentimes push people outside of uh, God's people, uh, at least for a time, outside the camp, so to speak. And Jesus would heal them, but not this woman. When this woman comes and says, Have mercy on me, Lord. She calls him Lord. Son of David. She calls him Son of David, a messianic title, the king uh, of the Jews. Have mercy on my, my daughter. She's at home and she's being tortured by the devil. And Jesus responds with silence. Uh, we don't expect that. Silence. Silence from God. Maybe you've received silence from God when you are in a desperate place. And this woman was certainly in a desperate place, right? Oswald Chambers, the 19th century Christian writer and thinker, put it a very interesting way. He asks the question like this. He says, Has God ever trusted you with his silence? Which reminds me of a a quote by Mother Teresa, who said, I know God trusts me. I wish he didn't trust me so much. <laughs> you know, people people respond to God's silence in different ways. Some people they wait it out. That seems reasonable to me. Like Habakkuk, you may remember Habakkuk demanding an answer from God. God is silent, and Habakkuk says, "I will stay here on the watchtower and wait until you give me an answer, Lord." Um, other people, when God is silent, you know, they're kind of convinced God doesn't work this way. God w- doesn't work like that. God will speak to his people and they listen, they listen, they listen. They, they listen to just about anything, even if it's not God. Other people, when God is silent, they get busy. You know, the house is, is clean. Other people, uh, when, when God is silent, they, they may start to doubt. It seems like a natural uh, reaction. Faith is hard earned. Other people, when God is silent, they might just walk away. Walk away from God. People respond to that silence in all those types of ways, but not this woman. This woman just gets louder, right? She just won't give up. And so she begs Jesus to heal her daughter. Jesus is quiet. And as the story kind of unfolds, as Matthew continues the story, what becomes clear is that she shifts her focus from Jesus to the disciples and starts begging them. Uh, Matthew doesn't tell us what she says, but whatever it was, uh, it got their attention, or at least their goat, because now they are begging Jesus, right? Send her away, uh, teacher, master, send her away. Now, what do they mean by this? It really could mean a couple things. They could mean, uh, this is annoying, this is uh, kind of obnoxious right now, and just get her out of here. Um, This is, you know, kind of tripping us up a little bit. Um, For example, remember when the moms brought Jesus all their babies uh, that he would bless them? They wanted a blessing for their, their children. And the disciples tell the mothers, 
go away. Don't bother the teacher with this stuff. And maybe that's what's happening here. It could be. But there's another way to take this, and I think, I think it's, it's a good way. Um, notice Jesus' response when they say, send her away. He says, I was not sent, or he says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. It seems to me um, that what they're actually getting at is, send her away by healing her already. Let's get this over with. Heal her and so she can be on her way. To which Jesus says, um, she's not, she's not uh, Israelite. That's not what I'm here to do. It seems to me that's what we're getting, what he's getting at, and what the disciples are getting at by saying, send her away. Uh, it seems odd that Jesus would say something like this, doesn't it? Um, here's a woman. She's begging Jesus to heal uh, her daughter. Jesus is quiet, so she, she begs to the, the disciples, and now they start begging. It's a cacophony of begging and all this. Come on already, heal her, heal her, heal her. And he, Jesus says... I tell you what, if his first silence wasn't strange enough to us, this is stranger still. Um, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. What is going on here? Um, it seems like he's acting like a, maybe like a police officer who, outside of her jurisdiction, off-duty, someone needs help, and, you know, this isn't my job right now. What is going on? The, the idea that the good news of the gospel and that Jesus' mission was for the Jews, at least at first, is actually a common theme in the New Testament. It's a common theme. Uh, it's one that, that oftentimes doesn't get picked up uh, in, in, in Bible studies or by preachers, but the New Testament doesn't ignore it. Uh, you, you may recall this, this time in Matthew chapter 10 when Jesus is sending out his disciples <clears throat> and uh, he says, go out, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons. That's quite, a, that's quite a calling, isn't it? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out the demons. Because the kingdom is coming. And then Jesus gives this clear instruction. But don't go to the Gentile towns, he says. And don't go to Samaria. Go only to the lost sheep of Israel. When Adam and Eve ate that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, rebelling against God ultimately, essentially, um, sin and death and destruction and decay flooded uh, the creation and, and landed in the laps of human beings. God decided to start a mission and, and, and a rescue plan to save us all. And that plan started with the calling of a couple... Abraham and Sarah, he, through these two people, would rise up a nation that would be unto all the nations uh, a priesthood. That is, a people that brought people to God. Israel was to be a nation that all the nations looked to and came to Zion and worshipped and praised Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca, Leah. You know, I got the, the, the ladies in the wrong order there. Sorry about that. God called Israel to be the plan of salvation. Truth. You are my servant, Israel, Isaiah 49.3, through whom I will reveal the spl my splendor to all the nations. 
this is a promise that God made to Abraham. This is a promise he made to Moses. This is a promise he made uh, to David. And God does not go back on his promises. God will not do that. Of course, it never actually worked out that way. Um, Israel herself, supposed to be this kind of city on a hill, uh, this light to the nations, herself turned her back on God. It's like there was a, a house on fire, and, and a, a, a fire truck was dispatched, and the fire truck is on the way to rescue the people from this burning house and to save it from its destruction, but along the way, the fire truck itself goes in the ditch. What is God to do? Through a series of catastrophic events, the Israelites, they find themselves broken and scattered all over the world. This brokenness threatens the promises of God. The promises to use Israel to rescue all the nations. And the promises that God had made to Abraham and to Sarah and to Moses, to David. Listen to what Ezekiel says. God prophesying through the prophet Ezekiel, I myself will search for my sheep and I am going to seek them out. And listen to what Isaiah says, a prophecy of the great prophet Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 6. And if there's anything like a life verse of Jesus, I think this is about as close as you'll find. Isaiah is speaking to the Messiah. God speaking to the Messiah. Is it too insignificant a task for you to be my servant, to reestablish the tribes of Jacob and to restore the remnant of Israel? And then I will make a light to the nations so that you can bring my deliverance to the ends of the earth. When Jesus set foot on this planet, it was not a redo. It was a rescue mission to God's people, Israel, to get that fire truck out of the ditch and save that burning house to all the nations. So back to this Canaanite woman here, a Gentile. Jesus says this, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Seems to perhaps have pacified the disciples. Because uh, in, in this version in Matthew and over in Mark, Mark has a very similar story. Same story, tells it a little differently. The disciples don't say another word. They seem to be pacified by the limited scope of Jesus' mission right now. They're pacified. But not the woman. She's not pacified. She becomes even more tenacious. She bows before Jesus. Lord, help me, she says. You know, I think for some of us here this morning, the message... Might be. This isn't in my script, but I do think this might be the message. Don't give up. Don't give up. We could learn a lot from this Gentile woman. We're gen- many of us are Gentiles. Just get tenacious about it. So she says, Lord, help me, right? Um, and then Jesus finally turns to her to say something. He hadn't said anything to her yet. Uh, he was talking to the disciples. And he turns to her and he says... It is not fair to take the food for the children and uh, throw it to the dogs. Hmm. Really? That doesn't sound like my Jesus. 
to say something like that. We only have a few options as to what he means. It could be that um, he's kind of being sarcastic and he's actually, in kind of an ironic way, um, flipping this whole idea that the, that the Gentiles are dogs up, uh, upside, uh, upside down. Could be that. Nothing in the text really suggests it, uh, but it could be. Maybe he's being kind of, sort of ironical. Another way to interpret this is that um, Jesus, by saying this, is in some way testing the woman's faith or the disciples' faith. Maybe it's a test. Some commentators go this direction. Some preachers um, will go this direction. Again, I, it's possible. I, I don't see why it, Jesus would do these kinds of things. But nothing in the text itself suggests it. Nothing that Matthew says suggests it was a test or a Mark's version. Or the third option, that Jesus himself was just kind of tapping into cultural norms of the day. Uh, listen to what it says in the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, the, the Talmud was written a few hundred years after Jesus' day, but I do think it, it taps into some of the, the mindset of the people. Here's what it says. As the sacred food was intended for men, but not for the dogs, the Torah was intended to be given to the chosen people and not the Gentiles. And so the children, the children of the table are the Israelites. The food, the food Jesus is referring to would be the blessings of the Messiah, the, um, the miracles the kingdom, these kinds of things. And the dogs then would be the Gentiles, uh, like, like Canaanites. Ah, there it is. The elephant in the room has decided to get up and start running around. What we have in this story are real ethnic and religious tensions, maybe even some socioeconomic tensions as well, real ones. Uh, sometimes folks ignore this stuff. Well, Matthew's not ignoring it. When Jesus stepped into this world, Jesus did not step into a world of people holding hands. Jesus stepped into a mess. Thank God. Jesus stepped into a mess. He stepped right into the middle of a deep-seated conflict between Jews and their Gentile oppressors. That's what Jesus stepped right into. And he didn't step in as a, as a neutral arbitrator or a casual observer. Jesus stepped into this conflict on a particular side of the conflict as a Jew. Uh, Jesus grew up in Galilee. He grew up uh, a, a, a little Jewish boy who played with little Jewish boys and little Jewish girls. He grew up celebrating Hanukkah. He grew up celebrating Passover, festivals and celebrations all about the, the Jews finally finding liberation, getting out from under the oppression of their Gentile oppressors. Jesus was raised on stories about the dangers of the Canaanites. Uh, he, he grew up reading stories about the, the extermination of the Canaanites. Jesus grew up uh, reading about and, and, and hearing from his teachers that the Canaanites, uh, they, they can take God's people and turn them away from God, which they eventually did do according to the Old Testament. Jesus grew up in Galilee, about 40 miles south of Tyre and Sidon, the Phoenician cities of the north. Economically, uh, no doubt, Jesus watched as these cities would, would literally take bread 
from the poor and underprivileged people of Galilee. Jesus was underprivileged. Jesus probably heard the stories, maybe even witnessed with his own eyes, his people crucified at the hands of the Romans. This was not uncommon. According to the Gospels, Jesus only left his homeland of Israel once. And this is it. This story we get of him up in Tyre and Sidon. According to the Gospels, he he didn't leave Israel other than this moment. And when he was up there, I wonder what went through his head. He's in a foreign land. What went through his head? As he walked the streets up there, as he caught eyes with the people up there, as a Jew, was he ever afraid? In those hostile Phoenician cities? Did he or his disciples, I mean, I just wonder, did he and his disciples ever receive religious or racial slurs up there? Matthew doesn't tell us. All we get is this little story about the Canaanite woman. But the way that the story is kind of unfolding suggests, I mean, at least to me, that Jesus was not immune to the realities of these things in his day. He was a human being. Scandal of the Incarnation. This stuff worked on him too, just like it works on people today. Each and every person on this planet has their own circumstances to which they are not neutral. They may not all be ethnic tensions or religious tensions, although there's certainly no shortage of those in our world. But we all have our own particularities our particular views, uh, our particular allegiances, whether it be in our families or in our churches or our politics or or, uh, our nationalities and those allegiances. And so did Jesus. He had his own particularities too. And what can be difficult for me uh, to, to admit sometimes is these particularities are not exactly my own. Uh, Jesus was probably not a Minnesota Vikings fan. He was a Twins fan. (laughs) And all God's people said, Amen. Yeah. (laughs) But for me, this is a really vital truth. Because when Jesus starts to look like me, I'm not talking about me looking more and more like Jesus. But when Jesus starts to look more and more like me, and I'm kind of shaping him that way, when he holds my same views on everything, and um, he, he talks and walks like someone who grew up in Minnesota and is married, has got a few kids, and, and is a pastor down in southern Minnesota, when he looks like that, maybe I'm not worshiping Jesus anymore. I know that's kind of a funny way to put it. But what if I believe that God extends mercy only to the people that I want to extend mercy to? Even my coworkers. <laughs> or what if, one, what if I think God will forgive only the things that I would forgive? Or what if I think God will be as merciful and generous to the poor, only as merciful and generous I am um, to, to those folks? And what if I think that God should be working in the world the exact same way I'd be working in the world if I was God? The particularities of Jesus, they force me to come to terms kind of with the particularities of myself. And if I let them, for me, they really protect me from creating God to be what I want God to look like. Reminds me of that witty old saying, uh, God made man in his image and man decided to return the favor.
um, Scripture tells us that, I believe Hebrews, that Jesus was tempted in every way we were tempted. That's crazy. Jesus was tempted in every way we were tempted. No doubt, Jesus had reasons to hate the Gentiles. I mean, how many little babies did King Herod kill in Bethlehem anyway? Uh, and then his boy, Herod Antipas, took the head right off of John, John the Baptist. I mean, all the way back from Pharaoh to Nebuchadnezzar to Antiochus to Herod. These Gentile dogs, they're violent and they hurt my people. They don't deserve none of the bread of Messiah. I don't know. So this woman comes to Jesus and uh, and she begs him to heal her boy, or her daughter, sorry. He's silent. Strike one. And then she decides to beg the disciples and they, they ask Jesus to heal the, the little girl. And he says, not my job. Strike two. And then, and then she, she goes to the feet of the master himself, asking for some help. And he, he says, no. Strike three. You're out. Right? Not this woman. She does not give up. This is where the, the, the story goes from challenging to beautiful. Uh, she's not done. Uh, she's got something to say, something else to say. You know, Jesus, uh, he was like a word Houdini. You could not trap him with words. Uh, should we pay taxes, Jesus? Well, give me a coin, he says. Who's, whose image, you know, you shall not have any graven images? Whose image is on there? Caesar. Well, then give that to Caesar. Well, we found this woman caught in a... That was a trap, by the way. We found this woman caught in adultery. Another trap, right? The scriptures say to Stoner, what do you say? Uh, well, if you've never made a mistake, anyone here who's not made a mistake, throw the first stone. Word Houdini. You can't catch this guy. Well, this woman, she's a word Houdini too. Listen to what she says. Yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. <laughs> Isn't that clever? It's impressive. I believe Jesus was impressed by it. I mean, this is the kind of thing he was the best at. Jesus was the master of artful dodging. And this woman, uh, word Houdini. And Jesus may have been impressed by this, but it's not what impresses him the most. What impresses him the most is her faith. It's her faith. Uh, she believes there's going to be crumbs. All I need is a crumb. I don't need a whole loaf of bread, Lord. Just give me a crumb. And there's going to be crumbs. Because you are the Messiah. And the Messiah, the Messiah is a ministry of abundance. Abundance of healings, 
There's an abundance of grace. There's an abundance of forgiveness. There's an abundance of life. And the children, the children, they're going to eat up and they're going to get full and they're going to need to go sit up on the couch because they're so full. And there's going to be crumbs that fall off the table. That's all I need. (laughs) Woman, great is your faith. You will not hear that spoken of anybody else in the Bible. She's the only one whose faith is called great. Wow. You remember what the disciples said when um, Jesus was going to feed the 5,000 people? He says, hey, let's, why don't you guys feed these people? And what do they do? Scrambling all around. Oh, what are we going to do? We don't have enough money or food. Or, how are we going to do this? No one believed that he could do it. They didn't see it. You know who did? This woman. When no one else thought it could happen, she did. And so she gets tenacious and she begs Messiah for some help. Knowing there's going to be an abundance and there's going to be leftovers. In fact, Matthew tells us that after Jesus got done feeding the 5,000 people, there's so much leftovers, 12 baskets full. And then when he fed the, the 4,000 people, they collected all the leftovers, seven baskets full. Wow, there's leftovers. She had a view of the kingdom and the view of Messiah that outdid everybody. So outdid the disciples for sure. Certainly those Pharisees. What faith it is that she had. It kind of makes you wonder, right? I mean, is she supposed to be a dog or is she a lost sheep? Huh. Don't give up. Great faith. In a room this size, I would imagine that um, there may be, for some of us, feelings of, you know, like you feel like an outsider. I know my dad felt like that a lot in his life, uh, especially with church stuff. You know, he just, I don't really, felt like he didn't really belong kind of deal. I feel that way sometimes. I know. It's weird. These lies come to us. But anyway, this reminds me of a story that I want to share with you, and then I'll finish with this. It's a story that comes to us by a, a, a man named Fred Craddock. Fred Craddock is this storytelling southern preacher. Uh, Fred Craddock ran into this man uh, one time at a restaurant, and they got to talking, and this man, this elderly gentleman, finds out that Fred Craddock is a preacher, and he says, you know, I want to tell you a story about a preacher that kind of changed my life. He's, and so this, this man grew up as a little boy in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. The, he, uh, his mom was not married, and he didn't know his dad. He was what they called an illegitimate child. And this, this brought to him quite a bit of shame. He, he, he spoke of the shame he felt growing up, not knowing who his dad was and, and the way people would talk about that. He, he talked about going downtown. You go downtown, and people would study his face, right? People would kind of study his face. He knew what they were doing. They were trying to figure out who his daddy was. And uh, at school, the kids would do the same thing. They'd study the boy's face. They'd study his face. Um, and, and, you know, your, your, your daddy is so-and-so, or your daddy is so-and-so. Uh, and so he, he said, you know, I, I, I tried to keep to myself a lot, eat by myself, and at recess play, by, play with uh, just kind of off in the corner. 
as he grew as he grew older and he became a, a young teenager, he he um, started going to this church because he liked the pre- the preaching, uh, but but he never really felt like he belonged there with his situation, what it was. He would sneak in. Uh, he would sneak in just just so he could hear the preaching, and then he'd sneak out early, sneak out so that no one would s- see that he was there. And one day he snuck in and he heard the sermon and he was sneaking out and he's about to, to get out. He gets into the aisle, but you know how it is sometime with church folk and, and the aisle is all clogged up full of people. And so he's stuck there just kind of waiting and, and kind of getting nervous. And there's a, he feels a hand on his shoulder. And wouldn't you know, he turns around, wouldn't you know, it's, it's the preacher. It's the preacher. And the preacher is, is, is just staring at him and, and studying his face. And um, and the preacher said to the boy, uh, "Boy, why you're the child of?" And and the preacher stopped right there. The boy knew it was coming. Here we go again. And the preacher began again. And the preacher said to him, "Why, boy, you're the child of God. The resemblance is striking." It is time for you to pick your head up, boy, and go claim your inheritance. <laughs> Isn't that a great... How about that? Isn't that a great story? Kid grew up. He became the governor of Tennessee. Ben Hooper. Look him up on Wikipedia. <laughs> Elected twice. Listen now. That Canaanite woman... Because of Jesus, because of Jesus, that Canaanite woman was not an outsider. And neither are you. Let's pray. God in heaven, the lies they really do they come they come at us hard they come fast and if 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 we're wondering god do we i don't know that i fit in i don't know that i belong i don't know this is for me um there's all kinds of reasons that might that might be god could be things that have happened to us could be things we have done but i do want to pray against the lie that we don't belong to you in christ jesus because we do, even us Gentiles. And I pray that whatever abundance people need, and we do need, oh God, please hear our prayer, God. Whatever abundance we need, we might find ourselves at your feet, uh, maybe on our knees, and that we might receive from you, Jesus, what we need. And I pray that in in his name, in our master's name, in Jesus' name, in all God's people said, Amen. amen.